Hi, I'm Len App from Lean Pub, and in this episode of the Front Matter Podcast, I'll be interviewing Helen Anderson. Based in Wellington, Helen is a business intelligence consultant who works on high-quality business intelligence and database solutions. She leads projects that use AWS to deliver empowering services to users and is an advocate for data analysts. She also is a popular blogger and speaker and mentors people who are new to the tech industry. You can follow her on Twitter at HelenAnders26 and check out her website at HelenAnderson.co.nz. Helen is the author of three Lean Pub books, AWS from A to Z, Big Data from A to Z, and SQL from A to Z. In this interview, we're going to talk about Helen's background and career, professional interests, her books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about her experience as a writer and now as a self-published book author. So thank you, Helen, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and your career trajectory so far. I believe you've actually written about career switching and how your journey hasn't really followed a traditional course. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm based in Wellington, New Zealand, uh, which is about 200,000 people in the in the CBD area. So it's not exactly, you know, a huge place. Uh, and I'm currently working for Zero. We are an accounting and business platform for small businesses. Uh, and my role at Zero is to um, produce. BI reports and um, data analytics um, for whoever needs it within the company, um, and also to mentor those who are new to the data industry. Um, so those who are new to SQL have maybe just graduated from using Excel dashboards for their analysis, um, and to give them a bit of a helping hand along the way. And uh, did you study tech in university? Yeah, so I haven't had the most traditional background, I guess. Um, I studied marketing and management at university, uh, so wasn't looking to um, get into a tech career, but uh, have sort of fallen into it, I guess. Uh, I started off in supply chain analysis um, with Excel dashboards and lookups and pivot tables and Microsoft Access, which is not as sophisticated as what we use today. Uh, but that sort of set me on the path to where I am now, so using databases and and um, BI tools um, to deliver solutions for people. Yeah, I'm looking forward to um, yeah. asking you about um, supply chain analysis in a little bit, but um, just taking the opportunity when we get people who are sort of knowledgeable in areas that um, you know most guests aren't, it's, it's fun to talk to them about things. But uh, before we go on, you've mentioned business intelligence and uh, BI. Uh, mm. Could you talk a little bit about that, uh, just imagining an audience that hasn't heard of it before? Yeah, sure. Um, so the BI function is to take data from all over the business and external. Um, so that could be things like um, production databases, CRM systems, and then external, so um, publicly available data. Um, and we create data pipelines to gather all of that information, um, create data models, and then visualizations. Um, so um, sales and marketing product teams um, can see how their product's doing or see how they're performing. Um, in comparison to last year or their KPIs or externally. Um, so we're sort of the information hub for, for the business. And for, for internal information. Yeah, it's traditionally BI is an, an internal function, um, but with data science and big data um, coming along as well, sort of changing changing the scope. Uh, so predictive analytics and natural language processing is certainly something that BI is being more involved with. Yeah, I've got I've got a question to ask you about data analysis in just a minute. Uh, but what are some of the one or one or two of the you've already actually mentioned a couple? But what are some of the big let's say one or two of the biggest changes you've seen in business intelligence in that industry over the last, say, five years? 
Mm. Yeah, um, I think the scope is certainly changing um, with changes in technology and uh, what people want from data. It's certainly changing. Uh, we've gone from you know just creating glossy dashboards for execs um, and answers for sales and marketing to um, yeah predictive analytics and more data sciency sort of solutions. Um, as statisticians have come on board, it's become a bit more sophisticated and yeah, it's um yeah certainly changing every day, which is great. So there's always a role um, for for data um, in business, and I think the the roles that people take on are changing as well. It used to be the the business intelligence consultant would do everything from talking to stakeholders to building ETL pipelines to get the data that they need and then all the way through to um, supporting them to use their dashboard or their solution. Um, But now we've got data engineers who do the ETL side of things. So moving the data around and making sure that it lands in the right place. Uh, And then visualization experts. So it's no longer one role with many hats. Um, we've got experts who are able to use the new technologies that are coming on board um, and yeah, really have a specialization in that area. Before I ask you about data analysis, I wanted to ask you about supply chain analysis, which I know you, you mentioned you've worked in. Uh, what, what, just to begin with, what is supply chain analysis? Yeah, I guess it's really going back in time. Um, my first role out of university um, in my first few years um, of my working life um, have been in supply chain, uh, so exporting apples from New Zealand. Uh, so not apples with iPods and things, but um, the actual fresh produce. Uh, so the aim of the game was to look at what the grower predicted that they would be growing this year based on um, historical information and um, what sort of Um, growing techniques that they were putting in place, uh, what kind of size range that they were expecting to grow, and then looking at what the customers were expecting um, and sort of making that work. So translating what the grower wanted, what the market wants, and then making it work with all the shipping schedules. And you can't just make more apples. Uh, So it was really important to get that right and put a bit more science behind it rather than gut feel. Yeah, it's really interesting. When I was preparing for this interview, I was reminded of an old an old friend of mine who's a French engineer, and he um, works for a company or worked for a company that made offshore oil platforms. And wow. he talked about the challenge of like making sure like the screws from the factory in Nigeria get to the port at the right time and stuff like that. And it's it's yeah. actually, it's an incredibly intricate and complex field. Um, and one of the reasons I was looking forward to asking you about it a bit cheekily, because it isn't what you do <laughs> currently in your work, but supply chain and supply chains have been in the news lately uh, because of things like Brexit uh, and um, U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods and, and things like mm. that. So people are seeing in the headlines, you know, there's going to be disruptions to supply chains. Uh, and I think in a lot of people mind, people's minds that might be like, oh, well, you put it on the boat, maybe it'll just wait in the harbor a little longer, or, you know, the Chinese will find <laughs> another place to go with their goods. So I know it's, I know it's a view from 30,000 feet kind of question, but just as someone who knows a bit about it, how difficult, for example, would it, what would be the effect of a, of a disruption? Like all of a sudden you can't get your goods across the channel into Britain from France. Yeah, it's um, it's always a, a risky business. Um, supply chain is solving a puzzle. Um, you have to make sure that all the moving parts are, are going to fit together. Um, and having a plan B 
is always useful. Um, so after I did um, the work in the fresh produce industry, um, I worked with Timex in the UK, so um, mid-price watches. Uh, and that was always a challenge because uh, watches are so intricate and there's lots of little pieces that go to put it together. Um, yeah, and it was yeah, a challenge to make sure that all the right stuff was getting to the right place um, at the right time and having a plan B if there were um, shipping disruptions, weather disruptions, um, things like you know, public holidays. Uh, if you've got a public holiday going on and you're expecting things to arrive, um, then yeah, you've got to have lots of backup plans, um, which is great life skills, I guess, if you're a junior in the in the supply chain world. Yeah, and one thing, as I understand, this is an outsider who likes to read about it a little bit from the fringes, is that there was a shift, I don't know, maybe 20 years ago to just-in-time manufacturing, which is all mm. the, the only reason you could do that. So you're like you're always manufacturing exactly what's kind of needed in the current schedule. Uh, you're not just like kind of stock. You, the idea is you don't want to be stockpiling unused stuff. You want everything to go out the door as soon as it's made. And so the way things are made and decisions you make about when to make them are contingent, highly contingent on this sort of rapid flow of mm. goods. Yeah, you have um, sort of rolling forecasts. So every 12 months, um, you've got a picture of what's going to happen Um 12 months from now, uh, but you're always changing things on the fly and making sure that um, if there is an influx of demand, then you can figure out how to make that work. Um, and I guess it's the same way with cloud computing, which is what I'm involved with now. And once upon a time, you were racking and stacking your own servers and having to put investment into that kind of thing. Uh, and now we can use um, AWS or um, other services where you are just using just what you need. Um, yeah, so I think the, the just-in-time wave of innovation that came through, I think it was like 80s maybe, um, out of Japan that, yeah, it's revolutionized how supply chains work and had a knock-on effect to other industries as well. Uh, we, we've already talked a little bit about data analysis and data science. Um, and you mentioned in one of your books that part of your role involves onboarding and supporting junior data analysts. And I was thinking, uh, starting around 2015 at LeanPub, we actually had a huge explosion of sales in books on data science. And this even led us to partnering with a team at Johns Hopkins University to provide a LeanPub-powered MOOC platform where our most popular course set is called cloud-based data science. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what a junior data analyst does, but also why there's been such an explosion worldwide in the popularity of data science as a profession. Because that's, I mean, we, I've heard a little bit and interviewed some, some people, but I, I don't know if I've really pinned down an answer to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the role of a data analyst can be anything from just preparing um, slide decks and uh, Excel spreadsheets um, all the way through to data science um, where it's more of a statistical focus. I think um, a lot of statisticians have come into the data science world um, probably around 2015, so that kind of makes sense. Uh, yeah, I think the, the role of technology and um, product development in the software industry has certainly changed a lot of that. Um, so we're no longer just looking at um, Google Analytics and um, we can pull um, terabytes of data um, from product databases and we have the tools to um, slice and dice um, through all those data sets and make conclusions quicker um, because we've now got the tooling to support that. And data analysis involves actually a lot of manual work, doesn't it? Like tagging things and things like that? Yes. Um, there is this misconception that 
you can just click a button and the data's there, all the answers there. Um, but a lot of what a data analyst does is cleaning data. Um, so the data may not be in the database at all. It may not be tracked. Um, and then if it is tracked, uh, people put weird things into free text fields and um, it might not be structured the same way that you need it um, for data analysis projects. Um, a lot of what I do is um, in software development. So the database is designed around how people use the product, which is not necessarily what I need to do my side of things. Um, yeah, so there is a lot of yeah, ETL work and making sure that it's in the right format for what you need and data cleansing is a huge part of that. It's, it's really interesting. Um, I once upon a time worked on a product that uh, involved the idea of, of visualization, visualizing sort of business information to executives and things like that. And one thing I've known, and I've also pitched startups and, you know, worked in banking and stuff like that. So that involved lots of charts and, and numbers and things like that. And one thing I've noticed is that people believe what they see, if you know what I mean. And like, if, if a, if a dashboard is shiny and well-designed, or if, if a chart shows it, like, you know, to something like sometimes absurdly data to like two decimal places in numbers, people trust it more. Mm. Uh, yeah. How, how do people in the profession talk about that? I mean, you know, what, because you want to make it look good, but like, do, I, you also don't mm. want to give a misleading impression that your data is better than it is, but you also don't want to say we've got crap data. <laughs> yeah, that is a challenge. Um, yeah, if you, you know, don't have confidence in your data, it's important to let your stakeholder know because um, it's better for them to have the right expectation of what they're going to get at the other end. Um, a lot of the time it isn't perfect. If you've got free text fields in your app, then you know it's a bit of a wild west. Um, so you don't, can't necessarily um, guarantee that everything's going to be absolutely perfect. Uh, I think coming back to your point about the shiny thing, um, I think people will trust something that looks beautiful even if it's wrong and that's an ongoing challenge as well and the shiny thing with low confidence may get more interest than the black and white boring table which is more right um so yeah i think that's a challenge as well um and that's why there are more data visualization experts um in the industry now it's not enough to just have a go at it and throw it on a page and cross your fingers uh, you really need to have um, something a bit more sophisticated if you're going to grab people's attention. One feature of your career is that you've chosen to help people. Uh, 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 you know, like right currently you work with junior data analysts, getting them on board and things like that. But you've expanded that to help just the, the wider AWS community. And in particular, uh, I just wanted to ask, well, how did you how did you get started doing that? What, did you just find yourself, you know, I've got some information that I'd really love to get out there? Or was it more deliberate, like I want to get into blogging? It's a little bit of both, I think. Um, I guess I had come from um, Microsoft Access and Excel kind of analysis world. Um, and when I joined Xero, I had to graduate real quick into SQL and databases and, um, yeah, a bit more of a tech focus. And so now that I see other junior analysts who have been brought on but don't necessarily have 100% of those skills but have the enthusiasm to learn, um, that's kind of where my interest lies because I know how overwhelming and scary it can be when you're faced with a big scary database and no clues on how to drive it. And so, yeah, that was that's kind of my day job. Uh, but I started blogging on Dev2 
about a year ago now. Uh, and I just kind of assumed naively that it was a general tech blog, uh, but it's more web dev focused. So I guess that's why I stand out a little bit more. There aren't too many data analysts um, or data professionals on the on the site, um, but that's been great because um, web developers are really interested in how they can make the database work um, on the back end of their apps and things um, to better better support data science off the other end of it. So, yeah, it's been great. Um, the Dev2 community is really supportive, and um, one of the one of the devs over there, um, James Hickey, um, suggested that LeanPub would be a good platform to sort of bring the message wider. Uh, yeah, so um, over the last few months, I've been compiling all the nuggets of best practice um, that I've been putting out there in the blogging world and then putting that on the LeanPub platform as well. Yeah, I've got I've got a couple of questions about your books and getting up on our platform as well. Uh, but before going there, um, another way you try to help people is, uh, and I know this is on like the, the front page of your website right now, but an article about helping helping women in tech, helping lift, mm. lift them up. Uh, and I was wondering if you'd like to say maybe one or two words about, you know, if you were talking to your historical self, your past self, knowing what you know now, was was there any sort of like you know advice specific to being a woman going into tech that you would give give her? Yeah, I think um, traditionally it has been a very male-dominated industry, which is, you know, it's nothing wrong with it. It's just how it is. Um, a lot of the um, people on my team are, are males that have had huge amounts of experience. Um, and I guess it's a just a traditional thing that's kind of happened. Um, but now there is such a push for women in STEM and women in tech. And, yeah, I think just not being afraid to get in there and give it a try um, if you are thinking about changing careers um, it's not as scary <laughs> as you think and not as intimidating given that um, there's so many more resources um, for women getting into the industry now and there's meetup groups and um, slack channels and twitter support um, yeah I think it's just it's a lot easier now than it was maybe 10 or 20 years ago um, it's not to say that it's not without its challenges um, coming into something new, but I think that's true of all career changes. Um, so, yeah. One uh, one question actually that comes up on almost every episode of this podcast, uh, just because of the, the nature of so many of our authors are in tech is, um, you know, I like to ask people who studied computer science formally at university, if you went, if you were starting out now, would you do that again? And I also like to ask people who are in tech who didn't, but who didn't study computer science formally, if you were starting out now, and you knew you were going to go into tech, would you, do you think you'd study computer science formally in university? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I know it's a hard question. Back in my day, uh, <laughs> if you wanted to study tech, it was, well, for my particular university, it was um, electrical engineering, food technology, or the traditional IT track um, with hardware. And we built, I think we built HTML web pages um, for my first year. Um, so I, I don't think I would have, I think, given that there's so many other general kind of courses that you can enjoy at university. Um, so things like history and English. And for me, I liked accounting, which seems a bit unusual, I guess. Um, yeah, I think there's so many things that you can enjoy. And when you come out the other side, you can decide what you want to do career-wise after that. Having a degree is more about showing that you can commit to something for three years or four years. And 
I don't think at 18 or 19 anyone's ready to make that kind of serious career decision. Uh, so being able to make a pivot later in life with the resources that we've got now, like boot camps and online resources. And um, I think that, yeah, if you follow your passion at university, do something you enjoy and then make the change later, depending on what comes along. I think that's perfectly reasonable without a computer science background. Yeah, I uh, I couldn't agree with you more myself. Um, I sort of, you know, have worked in fields that have nothing formally to do with the things I studied in university, and I've switched careers a couple of times. And that ability, I think people often underestimate what it means to commit to something that's going to take four years that you're constantly evaluated on in a way that you can't, you more or less can't redo and finish mm -hmm. in the right timeline. And you're mostly self-directed. It's kind of up to you. You don't have a boss and you're paying to do it usually as well. Yeah. Uh, so like, that's actually like a really, like most adults would enter into something like that with trepidation. And, you know, for someone in their, their sort of formative young adulthood years uh, to achieve something like that is actually a bigger thing than just becoming a sort of like well-educated person in a particular mm. field. Moving on to your books uh, and to probably more like your more, more of your day-to-day -day work that you do now. Um, your book, uh, AWS from A to Z, which I love because Amazon's, it's just, an, I know it's just a coincidence, coincidence, but Amazon's logo has that little smile arrow going from the A to Z. Uh, oh, yeah. So it covers a lot of AWS services that people may not be aware of. Um, and so I was wondering if you could first maybe just mention, uh, to begin with, you know, what AWS is now and maybe one or two services about it that you really like and you work with that you know about, but maybe people don't know about. And, you know, I guess I just frame it like I'm assuming most people listening have heard, heard of Amazon Web Services and know that basically they built this like computer structure, like like you mentioned before, so you don't you can sort of subscribe to it and attach yourself to it so you don't have to have servers in the closet of your own. But it's, yep, but it's so a, much more a good than way that. to explain it. <laughs> but it's so much yes. more than that now. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so traditionally, if you are looking to set up servers um, to support some kind of infrastructure, um, it would be on-premises and you'd have servers in the closet or the cupboard, which <laughs> is a beautiful image. Um, yeah, and uh, AWS has changed the game in so now we can um, use their services uh, in the cloud. Um, they have data centers all over the world, um, depending on where you are. Um, there will be one close to you somewhere. And that allows us to scale out capabilities. Uh, so if you have a database um, that suddenly has an influx of traffic and an influx of data, um, it allows you to click a button and... Um, you'll be able to increase the resource that it takes to support that. Uh, whereas traditionally, you'd have to go down and buy the capability, plug it in, figure it out, put the infrastructure in. Um, and now you can just click a button from a console and it's all done. Um, so it's changed the game as far as um, infrastructure and development goes, which is fantastic. Um, but it does mean that they have a lot of services that um, you need to get your head around. Um, they've made it really easy to um, support niche um, infrastructure, uh, which is great, but at the same time, that's a lot of things to get your head around. Um, so uh, what I was trying to do with my AWS book uh, was break that down into little bite-sized chunks uh, where you can learn about things like Athena or Aurora or serverless and sort of get your head around the jargon and find the best, best result um, for what you need. Uh, as far as my favorite services go, um, at the moment, I'm currently working in data. So um, we use a product that AWS offers called Aurora, 
uh, which is a Postgres database um, that allows us to scale out whenever we need. Uh, and it's much quicker than your traditional Postgres database, which makes it good for users. And it talks directly to our data warehouse um, which is good for us as the keepers of the data. Uh, yeah, so um, I've written a little bit about those two services in the book, um, but then there's other things uh, like server management and streaming data services and just a little bit of everything. Yeah, thanks a lot for that great that great explanation. Um, it's uh, it's really interesting the diversity of services that AWS off- offers and the ways they can be useful. So for for people listening, get the book uh, AWS from A to Z because it really is useful to understand these things. And just to give a very practical example, some of the new features you may be paying for in some of the apps you use are are actually AWS services that people are kind of selling on to you. So an example might be um, like text-to-speech. So all of a sudden, one day, AWS comes out with a text-to-speech service, and then your app is the app you use. Like, hey, wait a minute, we can just pay for that AWS service and then sell it as a product of our own. Uh, it's not it's not underhanded, but you know they are. It, it's it's important to understand that behind some of the services that you're using is actually AWS, um, mm. and that this that like when they come out with a new product, you know that's actually one use that you, if you're like running your own company or you've got a startup or or something like that, that actually you can make of these of these services as well. So it's it's not just you know people in big companies or something like that. It's, it's very practical. And uh, just specifically on that note, I wanted to ask, so one way you can you can become an expert in AWS services is by reading Dev2 and, and your posts on there and, and all the other people in the community. But I believe you also got something called an AWS Developer Associate uh, certification. Yeah. Is, that, is that what it's called? Yep. Um, so AWS offers certifications for developers, solutions architects who have more of a high-level view, uh, sysops administrators, um, and then big data and security and serverless specialties. Um, so it proves that you've um, worked behind the scenes and you've understood all the services from A to Z. Uh, and yeah, those are offered through AWS. Um, they are... Uh, just a multi-choice or multi-response exam, and then you get a nice little badge to put on your LinkedIn profile. Uh, recruiters love them, <laughs> mm. uh, and it gives you more of a holistic overview of everything that's going on if you've got sort of one little piece of the puzzle in your day job. Um, so, yeah, um, I find that – so I'm working towards it right now. Uh, I've been putting putting a lot of time into the blog posts for the last year, so now I've – finally got to the end of that year and now I'll be working on um, on getting my certification towards the end of this year. In your book, Big Data from A to Z, I'm just going to quote you back at yourself. Sorry, but uh, you're right. Um, Oh, no. uh, The book hopes to demystify the tools data scientists and data engineers use to build platforms and models and clear up any confusion on how machine learning, artificial intelligence, and deep learning fit together. Uh, And I just wanted to ask you if you could talk a little bit about how machine learning, artificial intelligence, and deep learning fit together. I think to a lot of people, like, they've maybe read it, like, you know, I mean, this kind of dates me, but like, you know, they've read the Odd Economist article about big data or something like that. But, you know, what how do these things all fit together in the big data space? Yeah, I think it's a bit of a misconception that these are all new things that have been going on um, in academia in particular for a very long time. Um, I have a, a new new team member who's been doing this for ages. Um, so it's it's not quite as new and buzzwordy as people think. It's just coming to the forefront because of tech companies who are in the media and um, 
yeah, it's kind of becoming more and more more common to, to hear these things. Um, so, um, so big data is traditionally defined by the volume of data and there's no sort of one measure of how big big has to be, um, but the velocity also is how fast it, it can be produced. Um, that means it's considered big. Uh, so there's no real dictionary definition of big data. It's always changing. Um, but the mechanisms that we use to to, um, to work with it, uh, yeah, machine learning, AI, um NLP and deep learning. So they're all variations on a theme. And yeah, I think reading into more of what machine learning is, is probably important for any developer. Um, it's, a, it's a good thing to get into if you are in development and you're looking for a change. Um, big data um, is yeah, a good, good way to go if you're looking for something new or... Um, so moving on to the last part of the interview, uh, so you've you've become a, a writer, uh, and I, one thing I'd like to ask so you, you've mentioned, like I mean, you've got a you've got a day job and you've got this blogging job and you're you know studying for this accreditation. Um, when do you write? Do you have a specific time of day when you write, or do you save it up for the weekends? Uh, do you have a sort of X number of words per day that you try to hit? Oh, that's bit more scientific. <laughs> um, I try and uh, do a little bit after work and a little bit in my weekends. Um, I love the Lean Pub model of publish often. Um, so it allows me to get something out there um, and not wait for this big bang, which could be months and months away. Um, so I make a point of doing a bit of writing during the weekends. Um, but I also think it's important not to get bogged down because your side hustle might become your side job uh, and you lose enthusiasm quickly. So I try and keep it to as long as my laptop battery lasts. <laughs> so I'll go sit on the sofa and when my battery is dead, then writing time is over. Um, and the great thing about LeanPub is that it saves on the fly. So even if my laptop dies at an, an opportune moment, I've still got everything ready to go. Oh, so yeah, I, I was, I mean, normally at this point I ask, you know, why did you choose LeanPub? And it sounds like it's because someone recommended it and you like the in-process yes. publishing. So that's, that's fantastic. Um, so are you, you write, and so this is where we get a bit in the weeds. Are you writing in our in-browser writing mode? Yes. Um, Dev2 also uses the same similar um, markdown syntax. Um, so I've been able to lift and shift a lot of what I was doing on the blog and just pop it into um, the Magic Browser uh, and just make a few tweaks here and there and then add add um, content as I go. Um, so, yeah, I prefer to use the browser. Um, I know there are options for Dropbox and GitHub and um, other options, which is really nice to have that flexibility, uh, but the browser works for me. Oh, that's fantastic to hear. Um, years ago, when it was first when it first launched, it was gross. <laughs> uh, so I'm glad to hear that that it's, it's it's matured. And I'm not I'm not trying to downplay it. We work hard to improve things, uh, and we part, partly do that by um, talking to authors who are using things. So that's why I'm, why I'm asking and why I'm trying to be funny about it. Um, uh, so one question I had is 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 and I guess this would apply both to your books and to your blog. And I know that your the books come out of out of your blog posting. Um, is interacting with readers important to you either you know on social media or in comment sections or through email is that something that you engage in yeah for sure um once upon a time i had a wordpress blog and shockingly enough um that wasn't really found by anyone or looked at anyone except for me um and i think 
Dev2 really changed the game and set me on this path. Um, from my very first post, um, there was interactions with the community and comments and likes and um, James, who I mentioned before, uh, reached out really early on, actually, um, floating the idea of Lean Pub and um, taking this further. Um, yeah, so I think the, the community on Dev2 um, is really important for um, developers that contribute there. Everyone's really friendly. It's not full of trolls, which is always nice. Uh, and Lean Pub's the same. I've um, had lots of nice messages through the email the author function. Um, so, um, words of encouragement and tweaks that I can make and it's all been friendly so yeah I think having a, a voice in the community is just as important as putting the content out there uh, the last question I always like to ask uh, authors on this podcast is if there was one feature we could build for you something you found missing in working with us or if there was one bug or crappy thing we could fix for you can you think of anything you would ask for uh, I think the only thing that I find a little frustrating is the um, the preview box. And, um, yeah, it doesn't quite render everything exactly how it would be in a preview. Um, so I'm happy to go over to the preview function and generate a new preview um, of a PDF. Um, but it's not quite exactly what's on the screen in the Magic Browser. Yeah, thank you very much for sharing that, um, just, just for anyone listening. So the way, the way it works is if you're writing in our in-browser writing mode, uh, you can have a preview window open on the right, which shows you a preview. But, and, you know, this is one of those things where I kind of hang my head in shame. It doesn't, it actually doesn't exactly match what you're going to see in the book. Uh, it, well, in the, in the PDF of the book, like, and, and now, like that's, it's a bit tricky because if you're writing in that mode, your book will be output in PDF, EPUB, Mobi, and our app formats. So what's it going to look like is, and like, you know, people on EPUB and Mobi, they can set their own text size settings and stuff like that. So it's, it's important to understand that what, what it's really going to look like has more than one answer, but we actually do currently sometimes show you, like, I think if you've done a blurb, we'll actually show a little gray bar on the left to the left of the blurb or the in 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 the preview and we had a, we had one author just we were interacting with recently who was like I really like that gray bar but it's not in the it's not in the preview is this a and then people get confused is this a bug am I missing something and so like having a clear explanation of what the preview window on the right is for and you know having it at least match one thing uh, mm. exactly um, is is something that we know is an issue that we need to deal with so thanks thanks for sharing that because we know how like you know how frustrating it can be for things not to quite match well uh, Helen thank you very much for taking the time to do this interview and for being on the podcast and for being a Lean Pub author. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Thanks. And thanks, as always, to all of you for listening to this episode of the Lean Pub Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us wherever you found us. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please go to our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.